Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor podcast brought to you by The Herald. When we look at all of this, we have to remember that we're talking about people who do not fundamentally recognise or appreciate or agree with the sovereignty or independence of Ukraine. The Conservative government will come under a lot more criticism for connections it's had with very wealthy Russians. There are 5,000, or as of the end of December, 5,300 people on waiting lists who at that point had been waiting for over two years. Now, if you look back at December 2019, before the pandemic, there were just 150 people who who were on the waiting list who had been there for two years. Well, there, I'm Brian Taylor, and welcome to the very latest edition of my Herald podcast. Now, on the show today, just two topics. We'll look at the COVID controversy, look at that particularly with the Herald's health correspondent, Helen McCardle. Welcome to Helen. But first, of course, of course, Ukraine. As we come on air, the government of Ukraine has advised its three million citizens who live in neighbouring Russia to leave their homes and return to Ukraine. We'll discuss Russia's initiative, Russia's approach on the West's response. And there's a new controversy this lunchtime over the Moscow-backed RT channel, which broadcasts in the UK, including its guest presenter, Alex Salmond. I'm joined for all of that by Herald colleagues David Leesk and political correspondent Kathleen Nutt. Welcome to both. Um, David, first, maybe just just update us where we are. We're on, on the, the latest on the ground in Ukraine and Russia, if you'd be so kind. Well, the latest is that we have a, a state of emergency essentially announced in Ukraine. Clearly, they are bracing themselves for something. We're not quite sure what, and this has been, I guess, the story all along here. Nobody quite knows what is afoot. Do we know whether the ha- I mean, the, the U.S. president describes it as the beginning of an invasion. Is is that you know in 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 the, the the sort of language we should be using an incursion, an invasion, preparation for an invasion? Where are we in terms of the actual military buildup? Well, we have hundreds, thousand or more soldiers, some figures suggest 150,000, perhaps 100 formations of armoured columns surrounding Ukraine from the north, the east, the south and the west, because Russia has bases all around Ukraine, that we have a huge force, something like two thirds of the entire available Russian military, one of the largest uh, kinetic military forces in the world, all Mm -hmm. poised to strike, but we don't know what they're going to do. Now, we might think in the old days that bells would toll ab- above churches when war was declared. You know, sheep and amb- ambassadors would deliver a note. But essentially, Russia and Ukraine have been at a sort of war for eight years now. Yeah. So every new change is incremental rather than one big thing happening. In terms of, Kathleen, in terms of, of global reaction, as I mentioned, I mentioned the US president there, uh, the uh, he's talking about it being an invasion, a sort of use of a key phrase that that, that is his determination of as to what is happening. In terms of what's happened from from the UK, we've had sanctions applied to, I think it's five banks, three individuals, and more to come on on Russian politicians. But some opposition parties saying it's nowhere near enough. Take us through that one, if you would. Yes, um, the Prime Minister gave a statement to the Commons yesterday and announced these sanctions. Three individuals and five banks. His statement was broadly welcomed by opposition parties at the time, um, but their main sort of criticism was that they didn't go far enough. And that was also um, an issue that was taken up by Nicola Sturgeon yesterday in Holyrood and and reiterated today. Um, Some Labour MPs have been saying that that 
some of these people have been sanctioned already by the US for a number of years. The the Prime Minister, it seems to suggest that he hadn't gone further because he was he was he was in lockstep with the with yes. the allies. So, said that again in, in, in the comments just about an hour ago when he was being questioned on that. There's more to come, there's more to come, he said. Yeah. He's very much saying there's more to come, but on the fact that it's limited at the moment, he seems to be suggesting that is a policy that's that they've all agreed that the allies at UK um, US and okay. the EU have agreed. That's interesting. So that seems to be a suggestion. And they um, are very keen to work together and have a common front. And they, they say that um, it's in Russia's interest to sort of um, try and cause splits within the, you know, the US, the EU and the oh. UK. Um, I think what has been happening, there's been a little bit more rumblings from from Labour and the SNP today in the Commons and they have raised much more of an issue about alleged contacts between um, um, well the UK government and the and and Russia so um, I think Ian Blackford raised issues about um, party donations conservative party donations coming from Russia today so that I think that's probably an issue that's going to go a lot further. Um, I think the, the the Conservative government will come under a lot more criticism for um, connections it's had with um, very wealthy Russians. D- David, let, let's um, Helen, please pile in if you, if you wish. I mean, you're, you're here primarily to talk about COVID, but if you want if you want to jump in, please please do. But but D- David, let's let's talk about sanctions, and then let's talk about you know what Russia is doing, and then let's talk about why Russia is doing what 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 the the president Putin is doing the sanctions i mean presumably the concern on sanctions from the us the uk and everyone else is that if you sanction Ru- russian companies if they are trading with the west all you're doing is hitting the western economy and, and specifically with regard to the you know germany's um uh, uh, interruption to the nord stream 2 gas pipeline what the, the likelihood of that as as some russians pointed out uh, not that not all that gently is that you push up gas prices in the west so it's it's about you know trying to avoid shooting oneself in the foot tell me about that well i think we've got this idea don't we of russia as being somewhere really far away something that's not connected with us i was watching putin on russian television the other night and he was a bit late and before he started speaking there was a run of adverts it was snickers it was uh <laughs> It was for things that we are providing to the Russian economy. The Russian economy is one of Europe's biggest, despite people insisting on measuring it in crude GDP terms. It's a big country, the biggest country in Europe. It is intimately connected to our economy. It fuels the engine of the European economy with its gas and with its oil. It is not some minor place. This isn't some dispute with a for example, a Serbia of old. This is a major okay. economy and a major part of our continent. And I, I'm, I'm right in saying that if we if we try to damage the Russian economy or, or, or sectors of the Russian economy, which is what sanctions are intended to do, intended to make it difficult for Russia so that it with withdraws from military action, if we do that, we could be causing damage to our, our own economy in, in the bygone. Well, there will be cost to this. I mean, even in simple terms, a lot of middle-class Russians, for example, are traveling going on holiday. If we see visa restrictions, by which I mean both the visas which people use to enter the the EU and the UK, but also the credit cards which they carry, then we're going to have fewer tourists from one of the biggest sources of tourism in the EU, in Europe. If we, for example, start cutting off Russian banks from the wider Western economy, that will have a devastating effect on Russia, but it'll affect us too. And of course, from a Scottish perspective, 
we're a big energy supplier too, yes. we could see a big change in our economy. Suddenly the North Sea, which perhaps we were looking at running down, <laughs> becomes incredibly important to the energy security of Western Europe. So these are not minor things that are happening. This affects everybody, wherever they are, and especially yeah. in an energy country like Scotland. I, I would actually come in yeah, on that on. issue about um, energy prices. I mean, there's obviously a concern that um, energy prices could end up going up um, as a result of the Ukraine-Russian crisis. And, and already, actually, um, the energy prices are going up and there's a cost of living crisis in, in uh-huh. the UK. They're going up by something like... Um, Six hundred pounds or seven hundred pounds. Yeah, and, 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 and fuel, but, you know, vehicle yeah, fuel pump right. is at its highest ever yeah. level today. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So I, th- I, I think um, uh, uh, from what I've heard, Russian gas supplies. I mean, like thirty percent of European—that's EU um, gas. Um, I think very much smaller levels in Scotland. Things only about five percent, and most I think most of um, UK our UK gas is from Norway and also from the North Sea. But there is this, you know, um, obviously there is a very um, very clear um, political will to reduce, you know, our, our dependence on North Sea um, fossil fuels and um, expand uh, renewable energy sources. But at the moment, we haven't got enough renewable energy to fill any possible gap. Kathleen, is it, is it particularly difficult for the Prime Minister that one of the key areas of investment by wealthy Russian individuals is London and has been for many years. Yes, well, I think that is potentially a, a very awkward situation for him. Um, Ian Blackford asked him in the Commons um, today, I, I raised this issue with you in 2017 about um, there's a, a sewer of Russian dirty money flowing around London and you didn't do anything about it. And um, the Prime Minister said he is now acting, but I suppose the question is, why didn't he act back in 2017 when this was first brought to his attention? Yeah, again, so I think this is this is going to be an ongoing full thorn, I think, on Boris Johnson's side about uh, um, Russian money uh, in the UK. K- K- Helen, what's your, your take? You know, observing this, not your area of, of specialism, but you know, the, the, there's, there's been a huge, there's, there's huge anxiety. I mean, citizens in in, in Scotland are. Are, are anxious about this. It, it, it would be a war on European territory. Should, should it, you know, heaven forfend, come to that? I think. I think the, the point as well about about the bills is probably. Um, it strikes me is that that seems like that's going to be the most immediate impact um, on people here, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and that that's what people are concerned about. I'm not sure how conscious people are of what the impact would be. I mean, yes, it's you know a war in in Europe. Would be a terrifying prospect, but I, I'm not sure people necessarily are all that engaged with what that would mean for us here beyond the you know the impact on our own. I, uh, I agree. Yeah, our own yeah. household bills. Um, you know, we're not talking about nuclear war here. You know, no. <laughs> well, so right. I think people are you know there, there is that kind of sense of well, it's happening over there, so will it affect? my day-to-day life beyond um, my bills. I, you know, but, your, not... but your point is right. It adds to the sense of insecurity that there is in, <laughs> in, in, in Europe and global. And thanks. David, let's talk about what President Putin is doing and not doing. He has been given a sanction by the Russian parliament to allow Russian troops to leave, leave the boundaries of 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 Russia. And, and yet we're not certain yet whether there are they act is there actually an incursion 
into the the, the two areas of, of eastern Ukraine that 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 he claims are 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 sovereign states, or, or or is it is it is it waiting? As you say, he's got them. Why doesn't he just pile in with you know, President Biden? Calls it the beginning of a Russian mm. invasion, but it's, it's all very tentative. What what's going on in your view in with regard to that? I have no idea, and I, I would almost go as far to say I wouldn't believe anyone who said they did know what was going on just now. Good one. Um, the Good I think what we're talking about is important to understand here what what these places are. Yeah, and one of those strange things for a Scottish audience is. Perhaps something we forget about is that these two areas of eastern Ukraine are areas of substantial British settlement. Uh-huh. Um, that Luhansk was, in fact, essentially a Scottish creation. Uh, Donetsk was formerly called Yuzovska, Town. These are places which were uh, part of, uh, brought into the Russian Empire. They were called New Russia at one time. They were populated uh-huh. by people from other countries. Luhansk was its main street was called English Street because just the way that we uh, confuse uh, Russians with Ukrainians, they it confused um, English people with Scots. Scots. But lots of steel workers from Scotland went there. It, wow. This sounds flippant and stupid to talk about now, but I recall yeah. eight years ago writing a story about a humorous um, attempt by people in Luhansk for their region to join an independent Scotland because, of course. Our independence referendum was at the same time as all of the shenanigans that went on in Ukraine. So these are these, although they may seem like remote places, they're actually places that are intimately connected to our own history. Uh-huh. They're places that are not that far away, but they're also places which have their own dynamics. Now, I think one of the big problems we've got just now is the way we talk about these issues. We always want to put us, by which I mean Britain or the West, at the centre of yes, them. Yes, yes. But actually, we're relatively, despite these long connections, we're relatively peripheral to this. I'm going to bring in the others on this, but I'll stay with you for, for, for now, David. Let, let's talk about what is in President Putin's mind. What motivates him? Now, these let, let's be clear. The, these areas, Luhansk and, and Donetsk, are are part of Ukrainian territory, globally mm. recognized as part of Ukrainian territory for, for the, the president of, of, uh, of Russia mm. to send in, send in troops. He is breaking international law. There is, there is little doubt about that. What motivates him to think differently about that? Mm. What, what, you, you, you've described the, the situation. What's in, what's in President Putin's mind? Is it that he's been neglected in, in, in terms of global power status? What? What's going on? Well, we can only go by what he says. And I think that's important for what he says his grievances are, what he believes to be the case, what he yeah. communicates to his people. And in several long and rambling essays and speeches, he's tried to set out his views. Now, we often think that he must have a big grievance with the West, with NATO, with the EU, with America. But actually, he has a grievance with uh, another Vladimir, Vladimir Lenin. He's really mad about the Bolsheviks. So we often start talking about how uh, Putin wants to recreate the Soviet Union. But boy, is he mad about communism. He thinks that the people who were in charge of what he thinks of as Russia 100 years ago uh-huh. made terrible mistakes. And in his view, those mistakes were essentially the nationalities, the national policy of the Bolsheviks, allowing each of these countries, as we might think of them now, to have their own Soviet republics. And that meant that when the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine, Belarus and Russia became separate nation states. His view is that's a mistake because he thinks of these three nations as essentially being one. He doesn't think of Ukraine in the way that perhaps people in Britain think of France. 
He thinks of Ukraine in the way that people in England think of Wales. In fact, more than that, he thinks of it as being the cradle of what he says is Russian civilization. Uh And there's a word, which a term, forgive me for using some jargon here, which which we should be familiar with, which is triune nationalism. The nationalism of three nations forming one. That is Uh the fundamental, fundamental ideological point that Putin always makes. He thinks of Belarus, of, of Ukraine, and of Russia, that is big Russia, small Russia, and white Russia, as one Russia, all Russias. So right. when we look at all of this, we have to remember that we're talking about people who do not fundamentally recognize or appreciate or agree with the sovereignty or independence of Ukraine. Ka- Ka- Kathleen and, the, and, then, and then Helen, it, it also strikes me that... that... In some of the, uh, those those essays that he's read out on on air, um, some of it it's very disparate set of views. But in, in in some of them, he's talking about his own status. Now, again, without in any way, uh, you know, tolerating the, the the potential incursion into what what is the sovereign territory of, an, of another nation, which which it completely breaches international law. Did we miss a trick diplomatically, Kathleen? And perhaps perhaps we should have been aware of of the the, the grumpiness. That was underlying is a bit more than that, but the but the, the 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 huge discontent and disquiet that was underlying President Putin's approach should we have worked him a bit harder? It all it does seem to have sort of come up very suddenly. I mean, this war has been going on for what eight years, David said, and and yet we're only seem seem to be sort of um, getting to a situation now where we're responding in any sort of clear way, um, and. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I, I, it's not really my area of expertise, but obviously um, Putin is concerned about NATO and whether he sees um, troops going into yes. Ukraine as a threat to to Russia. That does seem to be, um, you know, a, a, a concern that he's raising and that Russians are responding to. I mean, I think Russians overall seem to be quite, um, behind Putin in in these measures, um, just from looking at, looking at polls, um, yeah. there seems to be a sort of, you know, it's not that these measures are unpopular in Russia. I think he's but that is partly to, because, of course, he's representing the incursion as being peacekeeping, something that's dismissed by the U.S. president. Well, as well yes, perhaps also Russians still also see these areas of Ukraine as part of their own country. Um, Helen, so, Helen, what's your what's your what's your take on this, Helen? Well, I think there was a good point, you know, being made at the weekend, I think, where people, you know, commentators were saying, if we allow this to happen, this breaching another nation's sovereignty, and where does it stop? I think that's a worrying thing. Um, You know, where does Putin stop? We had Crimea before, nothing happened. Um, He's he's now making these incursions, you know, into areas of eastern Ukraine, and, yes, trying to portray it as... um, you know, these, these are you know people that want to belong to Russia and trying to make it um, a, a peacekeeping um, thing from his point of view. But yeah, I, I, you do have to wonder at what point does he stop? And yeah, of course, the, the, the other points made at the weekend, drawing comparisons between the um, kind of appeasement, um, and maybe that is too simplistic. But the, but there is you know nonetheless a little bit of that about it. And uh, and I'm not sure, short of you know these kind of financial sanctions that we're imposing in Russia at the moment. Um, I'm not sure what else, you know, we as the West can really do. We are very weakened um, ourselves. 
PM's yeah. talked about sending military support to to Catherine. Uh, you were keen to come in, yeah? Yeah, I just keen to come in with some of the wider issues. I mean, um, in the comments yesterday, the whole issue about refugees came up. So if you know, hopefully there's not going to be a full blown war in Ukraine. But yeah. if there is, then what responsibility will will the West have to protect people who are who are fleeing? And um, w- will the burden just be placed on countries like Poland and? Slovakia, um, you know, who are bordering Ukraine to take refugees, or whether whether UK will be obliged to support people fleeing as well. I just can't help thinking of the Ukrainian people I knew when I was younger in my native Dundee. There's a Ukrainian club there. You know, there's a, there's a large settlement, large connections as well with with Scotland. One, one hopes it doesn't come to. David, this point, I'm going to, I'm going to move on to RT in, in a moment, Russia Today, but. Just briefly on on, uh, on a kind of a key question, President Putin says he uh, central for him is Russian security and, and NATO membership. We, we, when we were tiptoeing around this, and, and I understand why NATO doesn't want to exclude Ukraine from NATO membership, it's not a very likely prospect, though, is it, in, in, in the, the near future, at least? Well, essentially, this is what you would call chaff. It's a distraction. It's not real. Ukraine isn't going to join NATO. No. It can't. It's got an armed conflict ongoing on its territory. its territory yeah i think i know this sounds daft but it's important i think here to just say ukraine is a country it is a real nation absolutely. it is a place a real and, yeah absolutely and the, the areas of eastern ukraine we're talking about here voted overwhelmingly for their independence from the soviet union yes even the crimea voted for independence from the soviet union albeit more marginally Again, this wasn't a close vote in eastern Ukraine. This was well into the 80%. Yes. So we I wanted a way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important also to understand that quite often we tend to want to talk about um, what language people speak. And indeed, lots of people in Ukraine speak Russian, speak Russian. lots of them speak Ukraine. And actually, a surprising number of them speak both at the same time in a wonderful, wonderful mixture. And I think we sometimes maybe think that because people speak Russian, the well, they must be Russians. Well, we're just uh-huh. speaking English just now. And don't be you, Brian, but I'm not English. And <laughs> America speak, uh, speak uh, English, and they're not English either, Ireland Indeed. equally. So it's important to understand that some of the, 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 the narratives that come out of the Kremlin here are simply yeah. untrue. We're not talking about a democracy in, in Russia. We're talking about an authoritarian state. Yes. Therefore, everything from opinion polls down are almost yes. irrelevant. I think it's important also to understand that we talk about this as a Ukraine crisis. This is more of a Russia crisis in many ways. I would point out that 10 years ago, we had mass protests in Russia with tens of thousands of people taking part, precisely against some of the excesses of the Putin regime. Now, you'd be lucky if you got half a dozen very brave people showing up. To ah. show solidarity with Ukraine, uh, those, two, is, those two developments are presumably not not unconnected. With, with these are not unconnected. But, it, 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 so, so could could this whole crisis be a way of Putin keeping you know staying in power and um, maybe um, you know a, a way of um, promoting his own popularity back at home? Is that sure. possible? No, David? It's not, yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly don't know what's in his mind, and I'm suspicious of anyone who says that they do. However, that is, of course, possible. But it's f- fundamentally important to see here that Russia was becoming more democratic in the 80s and 90s. Uh-huh. It is becoming much less democratic now. We would normally refer to it as an authoritarian kleptocracy, but it's increasingly moving towards something far more sinister. Indeed, rather than just being losing its democratic and rule of law institutions, it's losing its entire constitutionalism. 
because we've seen some of the pictures coming out of the Kremlin of Putin literally distancing himself from his officials and reprimanding them. Yes. Really something more like... meters apart, yeah, hundreds of meters apart. Yeah, Yeah, something really rather like an Iannucci skit rather than something you'd expect in anything approaching a democracy. Whereas Ukraine is a more... It's not a perfect democracy. It's got a lot of corruption and problems, but Uh it's more of a democracy. So comparing the two countries is quite difficult in that respect. Okay, I'm going to to move on soon, but before before we move on entirely... Kathleen, bring us up to speed. A, a, a controversy breaking this this lunchtime. There's, there's, there's the channel RT or Russia Today. It's generally said to be Moscow-backed, Kremlin-backed, however you describe it. It broadcasts in the UK. One of its guest presenters is Alex Salmon, the former first minister and former SNP leader. Now, what we've had, the developments we've had, mm-hmm. the, the the PM and, and Nadine Doris, culture secretary, saying that Ofcom should look at RT's license. Um, more immediately for Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, the, the, the first minister, says her predecessor, Mr. Salmon, should not be broadcasting on this channel. She says it was never acceptable. It's even more unacceptable now. This is a, it's, it's, it's a sideshow by comparison with what is happening in Kiev and, 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 and Moscow. But, but bring us up to speed on that, yeah. Yeah, it is a, it is a sideshow, but it certainly um, come up in the, in the comments today. Yeah. And um, Boris Johnson obviously um, hit back at um, Ian Blackford over Salmond appearing on um, RT, even though actually Alex Salmond is no longer a member of the SNP and has got his own separate musical party called Alba Party. His own party, yeah. yeah. Um, but again, um, it was brought up by Jamie Stone as well, partly as a way of embarrassing the SNP too, even though actually Alex Salmond is everybody is not in the SNP. Um, and in fact, the, the whole issue was raised first by Stuart MacDonald, the SNP MP, yesterday who asked um Boris Johnson not to or to con- to end the broadcasting of the yeah. RT show. He said, well actually that's really up to um Ofcom to do but that. They, but he is he is his government has now asked Ofcom to take a look at it. I mean yes. we had a comment yesterday, wasn't it, from Alapa, it was it was Neil Hanvey, the the MP, you know, he was elected as an SNP member but defected mm-hmm. to Alapa, uh, stressed that Alapa were, were condemning the Russian incursion into Ukraine, absolutely condemning it straightforwardly. But Mr. Hanby mm-hmm. also said, take Russia's security interests into account. And that, that you know, drew some criticism from, from, from elsewhere. Yes. I mean, um, I think there have been historically some people maybe on the left of the SNP who've been a little bit more sympathetic to, to Russia than obviously the leadership at the moment. And there have been obviously the, there's an ongoing debate in the SNP about whether um, an independent Scotland should be uh, a member of NATO. It, very much that is the position at the yeah, moment, um, but it wasn't always the case. No. And um, there have been um, there has been a background of some discontent. Some SNP MSPs actually even left um, the SNP and went to the Greens um, yeah. o- over the whole matter. So, okay. um, and I don't. The issue hasn't come up again at party conference. Um, but I do wonder whether that would still be the SNP's um, position were it to go to a vote, because a lot of people who've joined the SNP um, after the independence referendum tend to come from the left. And well, I, recall, I recall the conference in Perth where that decision was taken, that it was taken fairly fairly clearly after what was, a, as, as you say, a very, very lively I suppose one of the one of the other reasons, one of the other aspects about this is that, of course, Ireland is not a member of NATO, and a lot of people in the SNP would like to see um, themselves as, I suppose, um, sort of following the Irish model of independence to a certain extent. 
if not if not necessarily the route pursued. Yes, yeah. It's well exactly. Very much not the route pursued, but very the, much the end result. Okay, let's let's move on. Let's move on to let's move on to, to COVID. Thanks very much for your contributions on that. Helen, let's 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 bring you in for real, for full now. Thank you very much for contributing to the earlier discussion. COVID, we have we have a statement from the Prime Minister saying Pretty well, uh, individual liberty will will rule. The, the 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 constraints are being are being lifted. Nicola Sturgeon's statement is is decidedly more cautious, at least in tone, than that. T- take us through that, if you would. Where are where are we? What's the latest? Yeah. Um, so, um, if you compare Scotland and England, um, from tomorrow, um, Thursday in England, they are lifting all legal restrictions. So. Primarily, um, you know, if you remember, obviously they had got rid of um, mandatory face masks and all the rest, and working from yeah. home and so on before. Anyway, um, so what they are getting rid of tomorrow is a legal requirement to self-isolate. But I think the thing to understand there is, when we're comparing it to you know England and Scotland, is we didn't impose self-isolation um, through fines. They did in uh, England, so that's what they're talking about. They're talking about lifting the legal requirement. So, fine. in other words, in England, it's self-isolation is no longer enforceable by fines. In Scotland, it's always been guidance. Um, You know, as time goes on, they're basically leaving it in England that from tomorrow it will be, you'll be strongly advised to continue to self-isolate. Obviously, lateral flows will continue to be freely available. That continues up until April the 1st. At that point, that is when it's in England, it shifts to what they're calling personal responsibility. You know, take that to be Whatever, whatever you want it to be, you know, basically, would you self-isolate at home if you had a cold, if you had the flu? Well, maybe you would if you were very sick, but you know, yeah. who knows how that will pan out. Um, in Scotland from Monday, our next big change is that we're getting rid of um, vaccine passports. Yeah. Now, again, how much difference will that practically make to day-to-day life? Probably not a huge amount unless you frequent nightclubs or... Um, you know, going to I'm personally never practice. away from nightclubs. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm a UA of the dance. So program. yeah, so, so so that that's that's a change. I mean, the thing is, I mean, in Scotland, we never did um, introduce them the way they have in France and Italy and okay. Israel and all these other countries around the world, where it's you know applied to almost everything from gyms to restaurants. Um, the next big change after Monday will be on March the twenty first, which was being yeah. dubbed. Freedom Day in some of the newspapers um, this morning. March well. to Freedom, uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Um, so that is when mandatory face masks will no longer be required in Scotland. So in other words, okay. you're no longer legally required to wear a mask in shops, on public transport, or moving around hospitality venues. Okay. Uh, we'd have to say to that, again, I'm a little bit sceptical about how much difference that will mean, because I think there's a lot of people even now, you see it, when you're you're going around, you know, in your day to day life, there's I see plenty of people on the Glasgow subway and in my local supermarkets who are yeah. already wearing face masks. They've given them up, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're not being wrestled. They think, the they think it's all like over. To, to quote another phrase, yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, well, I'm, yeah. I'm going to come back to Helen in a second. Let's discuss the, if you like, almost the philosophy, David, behind it. I mean, we have we have Nicola Sturgeon used the word solidarity. The reason you wanted to keep guys, she said you couldn't make it law because there had to be a proportionate response to make it law. But she she appealed to people to continue constraint, to continue, for example, um, uh, a, a, you know, c- considering others, basically. She talked about a solidarity. The alternative response that was 
championed by the Prime Minister, also championed by Douglas Ross in, in the Scottish Parliament, was one of personal choice, pers almost individual liberty. You, you almost have two theories of governance there, don't you, David? Isn't it fascinating? Two quite different ways of looking at the world. Um, and I guess we'll see how many people fall into those two categories as the weeks develop. It'll be quite interesting, yeah. won't it, to, to look at our country. I'm, I'm always quite struck by the difference in cultures around us, around Europe. I think the vaccine passports is a really interesting one when we've seen Scottish businesses lobby against them, yeah. when on the continent, uh, big industrial organisations are going, this is a great way in which we can reassure our customers that they are safe. Mm -hmm. And it's been really interesting. I think sometimes the messaging from the Scottish um, money people has been quite interesting, quite different from what we've seen overseas as well. And I'm uh -huh. always, we'll see how this all plays out over the next few weeks. But will we all be people who wear masks to make sure our friends and neighbours are safe yeah, I will. and they're vulnerable, yeah. or won't we? Yeah. Uh, uh, Helen, I should have, one other one I want to raise with you. Alec Cole Hamilton, when he was questioning the First Minister, it's this business of the the, 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 the passports. They're, they're no longer mandatory. It won't be obligatory upon venues to to you know take people's details, etc. But it's still open to them to request them if they want. Cole Hamilton, Alec Cole Hamilton was saying, you know, he, he's again, again the, the, the vaccine passports. He was saying this was wrong, a wrong approach. That's right, isn't it? They, they can still ask if, if they feel the need. It's part of this little bit of, you know, clinging on, uh, retain, I shouldn't say clinging on, that sounds as if it's desperate, that's the wrong word, retaining some some mm -hmm. degree of constraint. Yeah, but I mean, I, I would wonder, you know, how many venues will, will we'll do it. voluntarily yeah. do it, because, you know, it, I think the main bugbear of the, the passports came down on the economics, on the, the, the cost of, you know, the, the admin, if you like, of having someone there to do the checks. If you've got one venue that, that you know, voluntarily you know, decides to bring in these uh, passports and another venue doesn't you your choice between you know two nightclubs well you know, it, yeah so, so I, I can't see that very many will implement them um voluntarily i'd also say i think the difficulty with the vaccine passports here compared to the continent is that because the continent did apply them across the board to yeah. everything from you know, restaurants pubs um cinemas you know because just by doing that, they have more of an effect because we've only you know, applied them ever to a small number of, of venues that a small part of the population go to. Uh -huh. you know, they're never going to have the, the same effect. The, and the other problem that I think you know, we had in Scotland, and this emerged when the, the, you know, the certification first um, was launched uh, for travel last summer, is quite a lot of people who had been fully vaccinated when they started to try and get the certificates last summer to travel abroad, which was their initial purpose, a lot of people then discovered that their details were missing from the database. Right. They could, mm -hmm. And I think that is possibly one of the reasons why the Scottish government never ruled them out or okay. you know, were reluctant to, because I think then an awful lot more people across the population would have started to discover if they needed them for bars and restaurants and things as well, that their okay. details were missing. Kathleen, I bring you in on another another controversy: the, the the business of testing. You know, UK government saying the days of free testing are are coming to an end. We don't have full details. Nicola Sturgeon obviously wanted to maintain free testing, but she points out that there won't be con uh, if there's no money spent in England, there's no consequential cash for Scotland. Take, take yes. me through that. Yeah, the the background to this was that um, Boris Johnson announced that it cost two billion pounds alone in January for these tests to be. Yeah. Um, you know, disputed, um, just 
um, giving out to people. Um, so it was a massive, massive amount of money. Um, and the the issue is is that public health is devolved to all the you know across the different parts of, of the UK. But the funding decisions are dependent on um, decisions taken by England. So if England decides, well, we don't want to um, continue with free testing, free mass testing, then the money is no longer available to to Scotland, Wales and and Northern Ireland to do so. Um, So I think as a result of this, um, the First Minister is very concerned. Um, She does favour the continuation of mass testing but it sounds to me that she's um, had to pull back because of the funding decisions. So she has to find the money from elsewhere in health resources, which is well. Well, she has to find the money from either health resources or other yeah. resources or increasing tax for somebody. Um, so she had to find her own money yeah. somehow. Okay. Um, but she has has announced that um, they're going to be doing a more targeted testing regi- regime, and she's going to. Um, reveal the details of that bit later so it could be that people will have free tests still who are in care homes or in hospitals or perhaps vulnerable um, Helen Helen, a related health matter we've had some pretty to say the least poor NHS waiting times I mean it is it's it's related in that of course the, the, the focus has been on COVID but it's another big pressure for the health secretary and the first minister isn't it? Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that is one of the ways that the UK government is is justifying this decision in testing. Like like Kathleen says, the the £2 billion, well, you know, if we're going to spend £2 billion in testing, can we really justify it now at a point in the the pandemic where actually overall deaths from all causes, not just COVID, are actually lower than average at the moment? Really, do we need to be spending £2 billion in testing? And and yes, the the figures are absolutely stark. I was having a look at them just before we came on. Um, uh-huh. I mean, we're talking about if you combine people on waiting lists for inpatient procedures, day case procedures and outpatient um, appointments or procedures, over half a million people now on that waiting list. Um, if you add, then add on people waiting for diagnostic tests, it's another 140,000 uh, people that, that are waiting. Um, and just you know, to, to borrow down into just quite how, how bad some of the waiting times are. Mm-hmm. If you look at the inpatient and day case specifically, so that's you know people waiting to go in for things like a, a hip replacement or yeah. you know a cataract procedure, um, there are five thousand, or as of the end of December, five thousand three hundred people on waiting lists who at that point had been waiting for over two years. Now, if you look back at December twenty nineteen, before the pandemic, there were just a hundred and fifty people who had who wow. were on the waiting list who had been there for two years. That's so, a so that's. 150 to 5,300. So I think when you look at that, um, we have got to start turning our attention, I think, to, to that. Okay. I'm, I'm going to turn my attention. We're almost out of time. I'm going to turn my David and then Kathleen, it's an entire podcast, and we haven't mentioned Partygate mm-hmm. once. Um, that, of course, is, is, a, is, a, is a result of circumstances, a result of what Millen called events. We have, we have the COVID uh, issue and we have this crisis in Ukraine, but will David will will this issue return? Will the, the the struggles facing the Prime Minister return to plague him, or or do you think it's uh, it's it's beginning to fade into the background? Which, well, I was fascinated by the attack line today on Alex Hammond over at RT, with some of the Tories almost suggesting he still belonged to or was the responsibility of the SNP. You yeah. could argue the SNP are short of Alex Hammond, but the Tories are stuck with Boris Johnson. Two men, <laughs> no, of, no. Two men of questionable character. Let's be honest. Dear me. 
Yeah, me. Kathleen Nutt. Um, well, I, I actually suspect Partygate has receded. It's not on the front pages at the moment, but I suspect it will come back once um, the police investigation has been wrapped up and the Sue Gray report is out. But I suppose if, you know, it looks likely that the Korean-Russian crisis is going to continue, whether then Tory MPs may decide it's not the best time to put in um, letters of no confidence um, to the Prime Minister, uh, um, about the Prime Minister. However, saying that there are something like three hundred photographs. So um, you know, all of these part, all of these parties, lockdown parties that haven't been released. So that will, if they come out, that could put um, the story back on the front pages. I think. It's certainly not there now, and it's not there now for very good reason that we're facing this this huge crisis in 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 the east of Europe, and we're facing a, a, what has been a quite remarkable, hideous plague here, dealing with it at home. Me speaking as, as as myself, I wouldn't question anyone's character. I wouldn't dare. <laughs> but there we are. Um, I'm going to call it to a halt. Not so nice as you, Brian. No, no, no. Thank, thank you. Thank you very, very much to, 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 to Kathleen David and Helen. We're extremely grateful. Very grateful to all of you for, for tuning in. Thanks very much for joining this podcast. Look out for future episodes from me, Brian Taylor. Toodaloo the news.